good morning everyone. My name is Ada and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us this morning. Um, the passage that we're looking at is uh, John chapter 13 and we'll be reading verses 1 to 17. Um, if you have your Bibles uh, with you, feel free to um, open those up. Otherwise, follow along on the screen behind me. John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not re- realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his cl- on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Keep your Bible open, if you like, uh, to John 13 and jot down some thoughts or ideas if they come to your head as we move through this uh, passage and look at love and respect. You know, as a culture, we really have been trying hard to create a place, a space, where people can get along. We promote being nice in the workplace and at home and at schools, and that's a really good thing, and there's much to commend about how far we've come since probably from when you were born until where we are now as a society as a whole. However, just give 2020 a quick pulse check, and I think you'll agree with that question today. There isn't enough love and respect, is there? I mean, think about this. Just canvassing 2020, you know, Me Too movement, Black Lives Matters, panic buyers, workplace diversity, Trump and Biden, the White House riots, white supremacy, border closures, people that don't quarantine, COVID vaccinations, the tennis players grumbling in Melbourne at the moment that can't go and play. What would you add to the list? What's an example of there not being enough love and respect in your sphere of the world at the moment? There's this great quote from Voltaire, and he never said it, but it's always attributed to him. Maybe you know it. It goes like this. I disapprove of what you say but I'll defend you to the death for your right to say it. Which sounds really nice, 
until you cross the line in the cultural sand, sex, marriage, generosity, refugees, vaccinations, China, homeschooling, and then, sorry, I won't defend your right to the death to say it. You can't say that. You get censored. It's unloving to not agree with me at that point. It's really tricky to navigate, isn't it? Even just a question or even type in a Google search, what does this mean or what does someone believe about this? You almost feel like Google's telling you you shouldn't type that in at times. I think today we're much, much less likely to agree with Voltaire here. Instead, we, we would agree with Leslie Armour. Never heard of him before until a few weeks ago, but he was the professor of uh, philo, philo, philosophy. Philosophy. <laughs> there you go. The professor of, philo, professor of philosophy. It's a new department at the University of Ottawa. And he says to be a virtuous citizen is to be one who tolerates everything except intolerance. To be a virtuous citizen is one who tolerates everything but intolerance. Now, my point in saying this is there's a space today in which it's really hard to have a different view and to disagree and at the same time, genuinely, truly, really still be loving and show respect to someone else, isn't it? But it's not the big things. I mean, they're the the news-grabbing headlines we have opinions of. But what about, bring it closer to home, what about the, the love and respect that's not being shown through a divorce? Or the challenge of navigating teenagers? Or managing a seven-year-old who's pushing all the boundaries at this moment. Or the strained friendships from the inbox you received. Or the post on Facebook, which you know there's a deeper meaning behind it and it just really grates you. Or the OHNS of rules in your workplace, which you just find ridiculous. Or the tradesmen arriving late. Or even just trying to make it through the week in a COVID world at the moment. So with all that in mind... In light of our Bible reading, let, let me offer us a way forward today. Let's consider together for a few moments a piece of the love and respect puzzle we often miss. And I think, and this is what I'm going to claim today, and hopefully we'll have enough time to back this up and you'll agree with me at the end, that I think if we get this part right, this will lead to more love and respect than you or me ever or society ever thought possible. And it all begins by considering God's vantage point on this. There's this great moment in Jesus' life where someone says, Jesus, what's the most important command? You know, What should I hang my whole life on and focus on and do and behave like? What's the one thing that matters? You know, Jesus gives one answer with two parts. He says the most important thing is to love God and then to love others. It's a strange idea, isn't it? Instead of saying, just love yourself, be nice to people, Jesus says, there's something greater than love for either, a love of God. Why would that be? Because a love of God motivates a love for others. Let me say that another way. To love God, to be loved by God, means the logical outcome is a love of people. And the reason is so. Because in Jesus, we finally have a frame of reference for love and respect. A reference that sent Jesus to the cross. A reference that sees such a great cost for God into forgiving me. I am not able to forgive and love and respect others all by that same costly grace shown to me. So let's give some more substance to that, shall we? 
I'm saying a love of God really can increase our love and respect of others. And is that the solution to the problem today, of there not being enough love and respect? So let's look at John 13. And you can follow along if you have an outline there at all. But there's four parts. We'll run through and then I'll make two comments to finish at the very end. First thing we see in John 13 is the first three verses is a really confronting scene. And these three verses set up everything else to come. And twice, in fact, we learn Jesus loved his own, it says. Jesus loved his own. He loved them to the end. At this moment in Jesus' life, he's sitting in a room with 12 of the disciples, 12 men around him. And Jesus knows full well exactly what they will all do to him in a few hours' time. And knowing that makes his love for them at this moment even more remarkable. You know, some of them, like Peter, who we'll get to in a moment, will publicly lie, deny knowing Jesus at all. Ten others will run away from him, abandoning him in his hour and moment of greatest need as a human, they all skedaddle. And Judas? Look at verse 2. The devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. How do you love someone who rejects you, lies about you, denies you, publicly slanders your reputation, avoids you? You know, some of the most hurtful and powerful human emotions in that moment. And and love and respect are not our first thought, are they? But John, our writer, is going to great lengths to emphasize Jesus' love, these 12 men, all the way to the end of his life, even when they are not loving or respecting him in return. Moreover, in verse 3, we learn something that you and me could never do, that Jesus in this moment and always in his life has complete control of the situation and power and he could change it. Right? As the God-man, he could influence this moment so he is given respect and love. In verse 3, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power. He had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew God had given him all power and control and authority over every situation. And naturally, we might expect Jesus would stamp the devil out, expose Judas, berate him, tell Peter to grow up, tell the other disciples, hey, don't worry, stick by me, it's going to be okay. Give them a stern talking about obedience, trust, respect right here, knowing what they're going to do. But doubtless, we just don't expect he's going to go the opposite direction bow down and wash their feet, saying nothing at all about that. You see, John's setting up for us. There can be no doubt Jesus is fully aware of who he is, what he's about to do on the cross, and what the 12 disciples are going to do to him. Yet in all the conflict, in all the chaos, and all the uncertainty, he still loved them. He loved them until the end. And how was that love expressed? Well, verse 4 and 5 seven challenging ways we see Jesus love his friends here. This year, I've been married 14 years and I had to use my fingers to get that number. Thank you, Rosie, before. And in our marriage, one thing I do like to do every now and then is buy flowers, but I don't buy them as often as I should. Because often I'll say, Tasha, I thought about buying you flowers, but it's the thought that counts. (laughs) And there are no flowers. And I've said that for 13 and a bit years. And then just this week, Natasha said, something happened and she said, oh, Luke, it's the thought that counts. And I went, oh, and she goes, yeah, actions do speak louder than words, don't they? And the next day I bought my wife flowers and they're sitting next to the TV in a nice vase. 
And you know, in this moment, Jesus, Jesus is not just thinking, it's the thought that counts here. In this moment, it's the actions that really matter. And so we see four things out of the seven. Firstly, Jesus rises from the meal. He takes off his outer garment, puts on a towel, wraps it around his waist. Jesus adopts the outfit of a servant here. Next three things, he pours water into a basin, washes the feet of the disciples and wipes them with the towel that's wrapped around him. This is a self-emptying moment. It's one of those moments you willingly become disrespected in your culture Jesus adopted the role of a foot-washing servant in his entirety, the clothes, the basin, the drying, all to show the full embrace of what his love for them actually means. Now, I must admit, foot-washing is a bit strange. We don't do it today, and we don't really have a good comparison in today's world of what it would be like. But we know from historical documents of the day, it was a job for the apprentice or the servant. Hot, dry, dirty roads, lots of dust. You'd lie down eating next to each other, around the table, and you just wash someone's feet. It would be the polite thing to do. Moreover, we have no record ever of a superior washing someone's feet. It was very hierarchical. The lowest person would do it. Interesting, in Luke's account of this, just before they get to this meal, the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest, who's going to wash the feet, essentially. None of them do it. But Jesus does. He reverses the normal order in this stunning display of love. A love that assumes a position of disrespect willingly. A love that embraces this undignifying moment. But not everyone gets that. Peter doesn't have a category for this kind of love or respect, right? And I don't think we have this category when we see it in action today as well. We say love everyone, but there's a limit. Peter's limit was this. And in verse 6 to 11, there's this confronting conversation with Peter and Jesus. And he's, Peter's really embarrassed, quite frankly. He's uncomfortable. In verse 6, he says, Lord, would you wash my feet? The implication is, you shouldn't. Don't do it. I can't believe you're about to wash my toes. Which in reply, Jesus says, I need to do it, actually, Peter. But Peter's thinking on a social, cultural level and doesn't understand it. After all, Jesus' words are a little shocking. Almost prideful, aren't they? He says, Peter, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. I mean, is this just fake humility? Unless, let me, or else... But if the symbolism is allowed to come out here, as Jesus intends, then it makes perfect sense. This foot-watching picture is a foreshadowing of the cross where Jesus will wash away sin and guilt and shame and you can have no part with God in his kingdom unless Jesus washes away your sin, the very barrier that stands between you and God to be resolved. Now, Peter doesn't get it in this moment, but what he does understand is he wants to identify with Jesus. So much so, he said, I'll jump in the bowl right now if that's what you want me to do, Jesus. I'll get in, you know, head to toe in a, in a bowl. It's not necessary. A single washing from Jesus is enough, always. Never needed to be repeated. But as with the foot washing, right, there's a need for ongoing forgiveness and cleansing. After all, grace enables us to love others and we're always going to need that grace in return. But the fundamental cleansing of Jesus cannot be repeated again. And then Jesus then goes on to explain more about this ongoing significance. Why why is this important? And he gives one single challenging command. In verse 12 to 17, one single challenging command. So he finishes and he sits back at the table and they're all probably a little bit stunned and can't believe that just happened. And he says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. He's speaking to all of them, not just Peter. All of you guys, team, hey, 
Do you get it? What I've done for you. You call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. So right here, Jesus reminds them of his title and position and authority. He's their teacher. He is the Lord. And he doesn't use his authority for his gain, but to serve those around him. It means he gives up his rights. We first see that in the incarnation as the God-man. And now as he goes to the cross, adapting, adopting sorry, this undignifying position as someone who serves and loves those around him who aren't deserving of love or respectable or loving him back in any way. And this is the category-breaking way of Jesus, isn't it? Of lordship and service, authority, humility, lofty claims and lowly conduct, says one commentator. Do you remember that scene from Pretty Woman where she goes to the shop right at the beginning and they look down at her because she doesn't look the part and she goes to buy some clothes and they, they say, this isn't the shop for you, you know, you should leave. And then she walks back next day, all these bags looking totally different, all dressed up. And she says to them, big, huge mistake. Because, of course, she had the money and the means to get it anyway. But I thought, saw that and thought, that's how we do love and respect most days, isn't it? If you don't look the part, I won't give you respect. If you don't show me respect and love, I will not show it back to you. You know what's remarkable is if God treated us that same way, Jesus would never have been born or died. The amazing grace of God in Jesus is that while we were still sinners, enemies in fact, to call it bluntly, God shows his love for us and that Jesus died for us. Moreover, by the grace of God, Jesus tells us in verse 15 that this example of his is to be the dominant mood of his community. He says, I've set you an example. You should do as I've done to you. He's saying, the attitude I have towards you, this must be your same attitude towards one another, team. And that's why our love of God must come first, flavoring our love of people. Because we can't exhibit those qualities unless we accept Jesus' death as giving salvation and allowing his blood to cleanse my heart, the seat of where my faulty desires are, where I don't love and respect as I should, now I can love freely. And that's the pointy part, isn't it? And that's the why the beginning of love and respect starts with Jesus. Jesus is not saying, as Helen Degenerates does at the end of every episode, be nice. He says, love, love by putting yourself in a position of disrespect. Love from the point where I'm willing to die, wrap my arms around Judas, who will betray me, Peter, who would deny me. Love from a culturally shocking point of view because it's uplifting to others. Love, already cleansed, already forgiven, already freed, already satisfied in Jesus. Not to get something, not to boost your reputation, but simply love like I've loved you for the benefit of others and the glory of God. Which means the challenging part is to love as Jesus loved. To be willing to be disrespected, if necessary, for the sake of the glory of God. So that's the story. This example of Jesus on love and respect. So what I want to do now is two points to see if we can summarize it and give us a way forward today what this might mean Monday morning, go to work, or Tuesday when you have your public holiday. First thing I want to talk about or show is that it's all about belonging to Jesus, right? This event points to Jesus and his death on the cross. 
which means the self-sacrifice of Jesus is the source of life and the way to show love and respect. And secondly, it's about behaving like Jesus. His love for us is a reference point and the power to love and serve others. So, what does it mean to belong to Jesus here? We love God, we love others. Embrace the love of God that he has for you so you then can love others, right? That's the point when Peter objected. Jesus said, unless, you, unless I wash you, you'll have no part with me. And Peter was confronted with a Jesus he didn't expect. And it was a handbrake moment in his life when Jesus pulled up the cultural expectation of what he thought Jesus would be like. But to stop Jesus washing his feet was to deny the very love and forgiveness Peter needed from his Lord. And maybe today, as, as we've been talking through this, you felt a bit of a handbrake in your soul, in your heart, in your mind, as Jesus is pulling up the handbrake of your life, when you feel confronted that this Jesus here, that the problem he's saying with love and respect in the world is not out there and it's everyone else's issue, but maybe, maybe there's actually a problem inside here with me. And that Jesus came to fix that problem. You see, Jesus loves you as he loved the 12 men at this table. That's why he became incarnate. Latin word, literally meaning in meat, incarnate. He became meat, he became human, like us, yet he remained God at the same time. Loving us to die the death we deserve for our sin and to forgive us and be our Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, it means I can stop living my way and start living with him as my Lord and Saviour. And maybe you need to pause here. You're feeling God confront you and challenge you on where your life's going. Then maybe... Maybe today after the service, you would even like to consider what it means to make Jesus your Lord. Or if you're not there yet, that's fine too. We have a life course coming up over, the, over February. Scott's spoken about it. You've seen it in the email. Maybe you're on the screen. Maybe you'd like to explore the claims of Jesus yourself in more detail. Find out what it means that Jesus is Lord. Belong to Jesus. But maybe you're here and you're saying, Luke, I already belong to Jesus 50 years ago. He became my Lord and every day he still is. And if that's you, can I ask you something else? Can I ask you to take Jesus' command seriously here and behave like him? There are some really great teachers around. And some of you are are teachers or studying to become teachers. And I found that I have a year nine math teacher who was amazing. I hate maths, I still do, never good at it. And year nine for one semester, I got 95% in her class. Because the right teacher made a difference and she left, got promoted and I bombed out and quit as soon as I could doing maths. It's, it's terrible. But teachers, by what they do, are good at instructing and guiding, right? And Jesus was a teacher, yes, he did those things. But at the same time, Jesus is a teacher, he is Lord. And that means he can command. A Lord asks for obedience, And so Christians look to Jesus as their Lord and their teacher, teacher to instruct, Lord to command. And that means we let Jesus shape and mould our opinions and views. And there might be shock at some of this, right? We will feel like Peter because Jesus will teach uncomfortable, unfashionable things sometimes. But he's not doing it for shock value. He's not doing it like Joe Rogan does in his podcast, just for some more views or some laughs. Jesus shows us what a flourishing life looks like under God. And of course that will confront us. How could it not? How could it not challenge us with our very identity, sexuality, priorities, generosity in life? Because it's hard to swallow. Because Jesus is undoing a structure in a kingdom, you see, that that can't hold the weight you and me place on it. The kingdom of you and me. 
Our sin needs forgiving. Jesus is Lord. You are not. We do have ideas that don't square with God's understanding of life. He's not teacher. He's Lord, not just teacher. And he can command new life and new priorities in us. After all, in Galatians 5, the first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. That's right. The gospel says you can't, but Jesus says by his grace you can. And today, today it seems like that the victim always gets the loudest voice. That if you've been disrespected, you deserve to have the, the platform and you, you must be loved back and have justice. And there's a good need for that too. Please hear me. We need to have a space and a safe space where you could speak up and be heard and, and seek justice. But here's the thing. Having the loudest voice as a Christian, for what you believe in Jesus Christ, for trusting him, for having the loudest voice in our culture, isn't actually the way of Jesus. Jesus knows life's not fair. So he bows down and serves to make it better. And Christians, we need not worry about how loud our voices are if we have rights as a Christian. If it's fair that the Christians always get put to the side, we, it's not important. Jesus shows us love and respect do not depend on winning the cultural narrative. It's about taking his command seriously, washing the feet of those like Judas and Peter. Dominic Steele is a pastor in New South Wales and he used to work at the Sydney Morning Herald for a number of years before planning a church and he started a Bible study in the Sydney Morning Herald and went on for a long time and, and one day a woman came to him who's never been there, never spoken apart from the passing hello in the office and she said, Dominic, can we grab a coffee? He said, sure, let's do it. She started talking and they chatting over coffee and, and he realised that she was sharing some very interesting, deep, personal things. And he said to her at one point, um, I'm really glad you're sharing this with me, but why me? I don't know you. Why would you even talk to me about this? And she said, well, I don't hear you talking or gossiping about others. So I thought it would be safe to talk to you about this. You know, in a culture that's so loud so desperate to be heard, the Christian should be the safest person to be around. To hear and love, to respect, to listen, to offer gentleness and grace in abundance, all because Jesus has given it to us. And maybe, maybe that's what's missing from our evangelism today. The kind ear, the warm smile, the ability in your workplace to be known as the one who I can go to and talk to about something. And that for some reason, Luke doesn't have to agree with me, but I still want to talk to him because he's safe. As Jesus said in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Today, would you be willing to live that way? To live a steady, slow burn life that looks completely different on social media, in your family, at your workplace than others. To show love to people who aren't like you at all. And would you understand the gospel of Jesus is your only way that allows you to utterly, for someone to utterly betray you and disrespect you and hurt you and lie about you and yet still kneel down and wash their feet in love and kindness and generosity because that's the world, the love the world needs to see. And that's the way forward, I believe, for there not being enough love and respect. Because after all, Jesus addresses the main problem, you and me to forgive and to give his grace to live differently. This morning, as you think about this, maybe you have a coffee uh, or morning tea. I don't know what you do here, actually. Do you have coffee? No. Oh, Timmy. Do you have morning tea? Yes, morning 
Okay, good. I can take the dagger out of it. That's fine. I should have cleared that with Scott before. Whatever you do after church, and however you say hello to someone, maybe, maybe this is a good thought. Maybe, maybe what area of life do you need to show more love and respect in? And just share it with someone. Maybe you could ask it to someone you know. Say, well, how about you? Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't particularly matter. How can I then pray for you this week and then commit to praying for them? Jimmy Bob over there, yes, um, I get frustrated with my colleagues at work because they just don't know how to use technology and I'm the IT manager and I feel like everyone's just living in the 1500s and oh, it drives me nuts. That was a, I got that last week from someone at Grove, actually. And um, sure, pray for you this week. I prayed for him and I haven't found out how he's going, but hopefully by God's grace he was a little bit kinder and loving with IT problems. Anyway, what is it for you? Why not share it and then pray? Commit to praying this week. Let's pray together now. Our great God, we're so thankful that you see us in all our mess and sin, yet you choose to love us, not because we are inherently wonderful, brilliant, good people, but actually because you are wonderful and good and brilliant. And in your great love, you sent your son Jesus to forgive us and redeem us so we can have a reference point and a hope of living with one another loving and respecting them the same way you love and respect us. And God, that blows my mind to hear it. And I pray as we walk away today that your word would echo Monday to Sunday in our hearts. That by your grace and only by your grace we can live this way. And that will be the testimony of each of us this week. When we get in those moments that we would show love and respect in ridiculous amounts because your spirit is at work in us and your grace is always in abundance, Lord. Forgive us for this week when we haven't, even this morning when we have not shown love and respect coming to gather as your people because you're full of forgiveness, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.